0: from Margulis, whether we're discussing the Palestinian situation, the Holocaust, apartheid, the vaccine mandates, or forced medical care, freedom is all important. I live in America, land of the free, we say. But I want to read the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peacefully to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So, if you care about freedom of speech, if I care about freedom of speech, that's got to apply to everyone, even people whose opinions differ from mine. I may disagree. I may not understand how they could be missing so much. I may feel they're incredibly misinformed or even brainwashed. But we either stand for freedom for all or we're going to lose it. Before COVID, I wouldn't have imagined, I wouldn't have thought it possible that we could lose the freedoms that we have here in the United States. But now it's clear. We must stand strong and we must all stand or we lose all our freedoms. Welcome, Dr. Pierre-Corey, to With the Wind, Science Revealed. It is an honor to have you on our show.
1: Thank you. I'll say likewise. Thank you.
0: You know, we we met briefly at the Wisconsin VexCon, where I was speaking, and then you joined our panel, and I thought, wow, I finally get to meet this man, and then I attended your conference, the Florida FLCCC conference, that where you were a main speaker, and so I'm just so in gratitude to you for your courage uh, to speak out and at great risk to your own career. You are the, if I'm not mistaken, you are the president and chief medical officer for the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. Correct. Uh, correct, and um, I have to say, I was reading your standards of care Um Oh, you also wrote the book, Ivermectin, the, the war on Ivermectin, which is so important. But I was reading your standards of care and I just had to chuckle at your background before we even get to the college and medical school part of your story. I was just curious. Is there anything in your childhood and your growing up that prepared you for what we've been going through and your ability to have the courage to do what you've done? So I, I'm going to say,
1: no, I, I wouldn't say that there's something specific that prepared me, but, you know, here's what I know. Just, we don't know, like the whole nature, nurture thing. We don't know why we are the way we are. Right. Um, sure. I will say maybe I could probably attribute some of my like kind of character or personality to my father and that he was always kind of, um, his views were, you know, he wasn't a guy who kind of went with, you know, the flow. He, I think he always tried to question things. He always thought of things a little differently than, you know, whatever the prevailing you know opinions were. And, and so that might've had an early influence, but really what I noticed is when I got to medicine, I mean, I would just have these visceral reactions to when I was starting to practice. Like I was seeing how people were doing stuff and I was like, why are we doing it that way? Like I always questioned whatever the orthodoxy, the standard of care was like, I just always felt we could do it better. And, and then another reason why I questioned that is because the stuff, the ways in which we were delivering care, I mean, some of it's been, it's like two decades without really any kind of evolution or improvement. So I was always kind of trying to push the envelope and, and I would say, then you have COVID, right? Which is now that's a different situation. COVID is totally novel disease in some ways. Right. Right. Um, And so In in the beginning, it was actually kind of freeing, which is like, we got to figure this out. You know, the idea that you're going to wait around for a randomized controlled trial to tell you what to do is ludicrous. However, Paul, I'm going to finish. I'm going to stop on this point because I think it'd be a good point to discuss. You know, what happened to me was I was the chief of the uh, the critical care service. I was the director of the main med surge ICU at the University of Wisconsin, one of the biggest you know research institutions, academic medical centers in the country. And in that position. When COVID was coming and when it started to hit the, you know, we were having these briefing calls every day, which I was like in charge of. So like everybody was calling in, like all the intensivists, all the residents, all the fellows, the hospitalists, you know, all the frontline doctors. And I was the clinical lead and I was learning different stuff. And and here's what I did. Something really bad is I started to suggest, hey, guys, you know, the mortality rates that we're hearing at from my colleagues in New York, they're landing on ventilators they're not coming off this supportive care only nonsense. These patients are treat it. I said, now I'm talking about the hospital phase. I said, listen, I think we need to hit them with steroids, and I had very good reasons for that. And then we saw clotting like we'd never seen, and I was promoting uh, anticoagulation. But here's my point, is when I started to do that, I, mean, I was also promoting IV vitamin C for lung injury because there's really good data on that. And I ran into some headwinds, Paul. Like, my chief and my chair, they were getting very concerned that I was in the lead here, and I was proposing, wait for it, wait for it, unproven therapies. <laughs> So. And, and, and literally so what happened was because this led to my resignation and that's how i lost my first job in the pandemic it wasn't was a corruption it wasn't me being a public figure with opinions that counted the narrative but literally what happened is they were basically telling me they, they were overruling me they started to take over the leadership of these calls and they were just like hammering away you know st- supportive care only follow the guidelines as if there were guidelines but basically they didn't want us to try to treat these patients unless we had some multi-centered double-blind prospective randomized controlled trial and i'm like well that's not gonna be around for like, you see that thought process that I was having? I thought it was a rational, sound, pragmatic, empathetic, <laughs> Hippocratic, you know, like, you know, I don't want to hurt these patients, but these guys, I mean, my chief and my chair, like, oh, you know, we've tried it at quite least in ICU for, for years and it's never worked and steroids are problematic. And I'm like, have you seen the clotting of these patients? Like, you gotta understand, when I was in the ICU, we had dialysis circuits clotting. Nurses were trying to do our blood. It was clotting. It was like, but it was like so plain as day, like they were clotting like crazy. Yeah. And so anyway, long story short, it, what happened there is um, it got so bad. And then the dean of the school moved against me and got the committee that had approved the use of IV vitamin C in this disease, got them to remove it. And when I saw that the entire leadership of the institution was literally countermanding what I wanted to do and what I was trying to propose, I resigned. And I said, you know, it, I, I say I'm morally and ethically troubled that this is how you guys can approach it. I said I refuse to be a clinical leader. But the point to your question is like, I don't know, the way I think and assess and do it, it seems like it's – I'm in a distinct minority. Like the
0: prevailing, the prevailing thoughts on this, I thought it was crazy. But then everyone thinks I'm crazy. Who's yeah. crazy, Paul? <laughs> it's it's Well, what's interesting is that Medicine is a very militaristic, top-down uh, approach, right? I mean, when we're in medical school And medical students, we listen to the interns and residents And they listen to the fellows who listen to the attendings You were at the top Yeah But what, and so they were supposed to listen to you But they, somehow, this group thinks that Like you just said, those above me, right? In that militaristic,
1: top-down You know, I think everybody under me was actually A lot of the doctors were kind of cheering for Because they're like, yeah, I want to use steroids I want to, like, some of them were starting to do stuff But then they came down over the top on us
0: I imagine you were seeing results, weren't you? Yeah Yeah, I have to let people who are watching know, um, because not everybody understands an intensivist and you were at the top of that discipline in the trenches, treating patients intensivists are at the top of the top of medicine because you deal with the absolute sickest, most complicated patients. So this isn't theory you're talking about. You were living that what exactly happened when COVID-19 hit, Yep. Yep. um, And your journey to that top, when I was reading your standards of care, I just had to chuckle because I almost went to Grenada to the university you went to. That's a a long way to go, right? To, To get to where you got. You obviously are incredibly intelligent, hardworking, and yeah, is there anything in that journey that also maybe prepared you for adversity? Imagine you saw someone along the way.
1: Well, I think it was a lot of adversity that I self-created uh, in my life, because if you read that piece, it was a little bit of a personal kind of history biography. And, you know, I had freely admitted that, you know, as um, you know, as a college student, I, I was very immature. I mean, come on, let's just be honest. I, I like to be social and party. And I really neglected my studies. I mean, I was a smart guy. I did well on uh, standardized tests. And, you know, I was a mathematics major. I have a degree in mathematics, um, which was no small feat. And uh, But I just didn't take school seriously. I was much more interested in social connections and skiing. I went to school in Boulder. You know, so it's very hard to, like, you know, put your head down and study in Boulder. And so the adversity is that, you know, here I am leaving college with a 2.6 GPA for a guy who purportedly wanted to be a doctor. And there's no path, there's no easy path. Now what's interesting about that is just let me just remind me. I remember so I have a huge family in France and lots of uncles and aunts. And my uncle, who's like a retired four star general in the French military, he got really active in Rotary Club. And I remember when I was visiting him one year, maybe 10, 15 years ago, he invited me to a Rotary Club luncheon. And he just wanted me to talk about like My story, And I talked about how I came to medicine, which is so foreign for France, because here's the difference. In America, you can have a second chance, right? So my route, which is I was in the restaurant business in my 20s, went to graduate school to, you know, clean up my little academic record, was successful in graduate school. And then I decided my only option to be a doctor, I had an option to go offshore and I pursued it. And I went to school at like 29 years old, which is very atypical. If that was in France, you are done. There are no second chances for the professions. I mean, you got to, like, do everything right from the beginning. And so that atypical route I had I think is very American, um, and I'm glad that there is a route. And so, um, but, yeah, I think there was some adversity, and I had to be really committed to, to pursue that. I really – I want to say, like, I had a dream, but I decided I'm going to freak this out. I want to go to medical school. That's just what I want to do, and, and I just kept at it until it happened. And what made you choose critical care? Oh, that's a great question. So here's the funny part about that. I went to medical school to become a pediatrician Um, (laughs) (laughs) and I had, I I swear it was very Norman Rockwellian. I had this very romantic view of like that, you know, those beautiful old, uh, uh, you know, paintings where this benevolent, kind physician, you know, puts a stethoscope on the child's chest and does house calls. Like I had this very romantic notion of kind of like a family physician and pediatrician. Problem um, is when I got there, I did a pediatrics rotation and I was like, I couldn't stand it. I was, It was so just not what I wanted to do. Um, I was in a very busy outpatient practice in Brooklyn and I, I had a very negative reaction. Um, and then as medical school went on, wait for it, everybody in my fourth year knew I was going into psychiatry. <laughs> Literally, I was like, you know, like in fourth year of medical school, I was like, hey, what are you going into? What are you going into? Everybody knew I was going into psychiatry. And then? I did a rotation in Manhattan Psychiatric Center, which is essentially like a center for like the criminally insane. You know, some of them got admitted in the 70s for like pushing someone in front of a subway car. And they, was was like still d- d- past. Yeah, they were so intensely schizophrenic. What bothered me about that was not the patients. is I had a very negative reaction to the attendings and the psychiatrists working in this facility. You know, we go into specialties where we're kind of attracted to someone, like a mentor. Like there's something about, it's usually because you, you develop a, a close, uh, when I say attraction, obviously I, I don't mean, uh, you know, physical or sexual. It's just, you know, I, it was the opposite with the psychiatrist. I was like, I can't work with these people. <laughs> and then, so going back to critical care, I ended up going into internal medicine because I seen the safest and the broadest. I'd find my way there. And then as I was in training, I mean, whenever there were emergencies, stuff going down in the ICU, the ICU guys and gals, like they came in, like, like just, I mean, I was so impressed with them. They knew everything, ventilators, how to intubate. Like they just put out, like, they just managed like the most intense emergencies. And I was like, I just thought they were the baddest of the baddest I, you know, they did all of the specialties. They had all of these skills.
0: And I was like, I want to be like those guys. Yeah. I, was yeah. by I was scared. I was scared. I was scared of ICU. I mean, it's really intimidating. It's intense. I, I love my ICU experience. And the only reason I stayed away from it is that I looked at the lifestyle. You guys work hard, long, long hours. You're away from your family a lot. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to pay that high of a price. But thank you for, yeah. for doing that. So let's get back to when COVID hit, because as you saw things unfold, um, maybe we can put it in this way. I, I know you uh, spoke at the Senator Ron Johnson hearing, and this was very important because he's asking the questions, sort of unraveling what happened. Well, well, you lived it. What, what would you say are the most important take-home points that we should now know? I mean, now we're looking in the retrospective scope. We have a lot of data. What are the most important points? Maybe what you shared at that hearing or just what you now feel are the most important take-homes, starting from when you realized we had this novel thing happening or somewhat novel?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a big question because um, it's so broad. So let me just answer, like, the things that three years in, um, this is not going to be a positive answer um, because it's more of an explanation for what went wrong, as I understand it, um, is... What I've learned Is that science The medical sciences Are so rigidly controlled By influences That are not scientific Um, And I didn't know that So like the things That I learned For instance And this has been Well documented for decades In books Many people have talked about this I didn't know this But The high impact Medical journals Are fully captured By the pharmaceutical industry Going to COVID we all, you know, we all venerated those journals. I mean, when a, when a study was published in those journals, that's the best study by the best trialist, and that has the most meaning, right? And so you always put those and put more value on those than anything else. And if you see what happened in COVID at the high-impact medical journal level, I mean, they, they I believe that in all, because the way I think of COVID, it's, just, it, it's been a massive marketplace for fraud and corruption. Um, I have lived in a country, which is not unlike many other countries, but I've lived in a country now for three years where I've seen a succession of policies that are non-scientific, there's no true rational scientific basis for every single policy from the beginning, the lockdowns, right? I think mean, the lockdowns, the mask, let's just say that one was undetermined. I, I actually don't go crazy on the mask stuff. I think, I think the rigidity of like mass, mass, mass is the only answer was a little crazy without, without sort of looking at the downstream and negative adverse consequences. But I've seen non-scientific policies. And the, the, the biggest crimes and the catastrophe that was created is that we've lost millions from the suppression of early treatment drugs. And we are losing millions from deaths due to the vaccine around the world and it's not only the deaths it's not only the mortality it's the morbidity we have a pandemic of those who are injured and or dead um and how did that happen i think the entire foundation for all of it exists at the high impact medical journal level because once you have the science to support this stuff published there and when I say science, that's, it's not the science. Those are very uh, corrupted journals. They censored all positive studies of early treatments. They only published studies which purportedly prove that these medicines don't work. And, and I, you saw that with hydroxychloroquine. And then the, the, the relentless, almost uniform, positive publication of papers that supposedly supported vaccines. And, and the papers just got more and more absurd. And then the constant ignoring of the adverse events. which so, so basically what, what I've learned, going back to your question, I mean, For me, the way I, I've just been transformed. Like what I believe three years ago and what I believe now, I look at society completely differently. I'm a little estranged from it. Um, I discovered a world that I was living in that I didn't know I was living in. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I I mean, going back to the hardworking ICU, like although I read the papers um, and I'm very well read from a kid, I was an avid reader, you know, and I do like different topics. I would say the last 15 years of my life, though, man, head down in the ICU, teaching and reading medicine. I was like on a steady diet on like this one field and I wasn't paying attention to the wider world. And then what happened is my expertise that I developed in COVID kind of just put me out into a society that was behaving very strangely for the stuff that i was trying to do i was just trying to do the right thing here i was trying to like share my insights share my experiences share my research on what i knew about how to treat this disease and the way in which that was received left me with a lot of questions (laughs) and so you know um so you know it's i don't know if that's the right answer or if that answers your question but i think what what, here's here's the deal right using that metaphor blue pill to red pill right so I am now like this red pilled person. I see society, and I see I see things that are happening that I never knew was out there. I see forces. Uh, I don't want to sound like I'm hallucinating, but now I'm, rec- I'm. I can understand the world's behavior because I know who's behind it now, right? And and I didn't know that was the case before. And so I think it's really important that we understand that. Unfortunately, our public health system, uh, that's nationally and globally, has been unfortunately captured. Our federal agencies are captured, and those are pretty strong statements. But they are fully captured by those which have other non-scientific objectives. I mean, they, they want to sell stuff. They want us to take pills. They want to, I mean, I, I try to leave it at the pharmaceutical industry level because when you go higher, then you can go into like, you know, lots of other more ominous stuff. But mm-hmm. I, what I can say confidently is I haven't seen science, um, you know, guiding what we do. But here's the thing. Most of the doctors in the medical system they still have implicit faith and trust in the institutions of science. So if you're going to still trust that the agencies are doing the best they can, using the best science they can, keeping up with the data and evolving their guidance accordingly, using their best in judgment without conflicts of interest, if you really believe that's how those agencies operate, you're not going to question a lot of stuff. And you're going to think everything is going along just fine and we're all doing the best we can. And I would, I would argue there's many – the majority of the system still believes that. They have faith in the agencies and faith in those journals. And they don't know that they're being lied to.
0: Yeah. You can't unsee what you've seen. You can't unknow what you know. And that puts you and I in a very strange place, doesn't it? <laughs> it
1: does. It, they put you in also, I don't want to use the word fringe, but it, it puts you in a minority. Right. And, and one of the best ways that I like to talk about this and Chris Martinson first gave me this kind of construct, but you know, what I found in my COVID journey is I kind of left the system first voluntarily, then forcefully. Um, and you know, because of my expertise on ivermectin, I started to develop this worldwide national and global network of really interesting lay people, researchers, scientists, clinicians, uh, large network of ivermectin researchers, and you know the things that we know and learn and share and the data that we pull from and we use many many different data sources and we've seen like when you really look at the data from any number of sources your conclusions are very different than what the system is and so i'm in this segment of society where we know things that most of the rest of society doesn't right and so I, I use the term that's kind of private knowledge right that's not common knowledge the stuff that we know so like you said once you see you can't unsee it but now you're, you're in it you're, you're living in a society where you have possession of really important private knowledge and i feel morally and ethically responsible to try to make that common knowledge because it's really important because it'll save lives and it'll promote health right. but when you're in that minority and the common knowledge is actually largely fraudulent and full of lies then you then i find I'm at kind of war I, I believe this is a war of information and you know the other side does not like truth you know propaganda the number one enemy of propaganda is truth and the best way in which to fight the truth is to fight the truth tellers. You want to take away their credibility, which takes away their voice, right? Because if you can be, t- be made a fringe quack, right wing conspiracy theorist, anti vaxxer, all the labels have been thrown at me, um, then I appear to everyone uncredible, and the only people who listen to me is that group of private
0: knowledge folks. You know, okay? It's right. very hard to get into the common knowledge folks to touch, to talk to them, to get them to listen. Huh. So you had. That top position in an ICU at a major teaching institution, certainly there were people below you who respected you. Oh, yeah, of course. Are there still some people in that institution who respect you, or do they have to all sort of submit to this uh, narrative that they're that they're required to follow that narrative to keep their job?
1: Wow. You, you went to the heart of, of a major issue. So here's how I'll answer. I don't, I don't know. I'm going to answer in general. So in my years, in my academic career, I was also, at one point, I was like one of the youngest... Um, program director. So I ran I ran a program, a pulmonary critical care fellowship. So I trained doctors going into my specialty. And so I have years and years of, of doctors, you know, mentees of mine. I have a lot of colleagues that I uh, was out around the country and, and, and taught with with my ultrasound experience, you know. So I have this huge network of former colleagues and trainees. And in the beginning, when I first came out and was public about the use of corticosteroids in, you know, hospital phase disease, I definitely was hearing the support i had people reaching out to me and i think they're like oh pierre and you know some of them were like we should have listened to pierre because remember for months in early covid nobody in the world was using corticosteroids and once it was once it became the standard of care overnight i heard some i was hearing from all of that network um so your question is what do they think of me now i don't know because almost nobody reaches out to me anymore i have a couple of old trainees that were with me from my early career a couple of them have quietly from the side been like very supportive like you're getting this you're getting this right man i appreciate it and then they will tell me like things are starting to change on the inside. They're telling me some of the doctors are really starting to question the stuff, you know, the stuff that we've been questioning from the beginning. Like I think things are changing on the inside, but I, I don't really know. I, I do know that my phone doesn't ring and I don't get a lot of emails anymore.
0: Yeah. So if a really critically ill, let's just say COVID patient uh, happens to end up in that hospital that you used to teach in, uh, what's their care like these days? Has it changed at all in the last two years?
1: I don't know specifically, but I, I can pretty much tell you it's, it's it, the whole country. Here's the other thing that changed from 2020 to now, right? So that era that I was talking about where, like, hey, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that. You know, once I resigned from UW, I became an emergency volunteer in New York City, which was getting hammered. So I went back to New York to my old hospital, and i that was really, um, a really challenging time. But I was allowed to use whatever I wanted to use. Nobody was messing with me. I was using corticosteroids. I was using blood thinners. You know, like, I could use whatever doses. I was pulsing people. I was doing whatever I could to keep these patients alive. And that was that was early. Now there's no there's no doctoring like that anymore. I mean, they're they're sticking rigidly to their evidence based protocols. You talk about remdesivir. We still live in a country where you have the infusion of remdesivir to every hospitalized patient's arm. You have this anemic dose of dexamethasone that they're using, um, and they're not using much else. That I, you know maybe they're using like tocilizumab, one of those you know cytokine blockers. You know they'll throw in, but I don't think they're doing anything else uh, beyond. I haven't heard of anything else beyond that. And there's so many medicines that we now know work. So, um, which, so like, here's my point on that though, Paul is in my career. I've never ever been told I couldn't use a medicine with maybe one extension, IV Tylenol, because of its cost in the hospital. It's so absurdly expensive. You know, they restricted that. So if you ever want to give IV Tylenol, you had to call someone for like specific permission, but that was a cost thing. But no one's ever told me like I couldn't use this or that exceptionally. So, like I could, I was using IV vitamin C based on a lot of data, you know, and I was somewhat unique in doing that. Um, Very unique. But now, what I found in COVID, I mean, not only do they restrict, I mean, outpatient, hospital systems will not let an outpatient doctor prescribe ivermectin. They take it off the formalities in the hospital. So it's like, we're in a different world now. Like, I, the way I th- I'm hearing about what's going on in those hospitals, those are rigid protocols that you must adhere to and must not stray from. And that's not the medicine that I knew or left. And medicine, physicians had autonomy. You use your best judgment, risk, benefit, and alternative analysis. You know, one of the principles, So I had these two guideposts that I would teach my doctors that I was teaching, Said is, is, is the two things that I bring to the ICU, if... Um, If what you're doing is working, just keep doing what you're doing, right? Which is like, don't change. If the patient was on a positive trajectory, don't don't do anything. You don't need to do CAT scans or new tests or try new therapies. Just keep going because generally, if someone's on a positive trajectory, they will continue in that way as long as you keep doing what you're doing. But if what you're doing is not working, you got to change what you're doing. And I was constantly teaching that. And what I hear from so many distressed people around the country, family members, is they'll tell me about a family member in a hospital who's clearly deteriorating, you know, 100%, even despite the dexamethasone, uh, remdesivir, whatever, they're literally deteriorating. And the doctors aren't like trying to get more aggressive, try other new medicines. Because again, when you're dealing with someone who's like imminently dying, the risk-benefit alternative approaches are much different, but they're not changing according to that clinical situation scenario because they don't want to depart from the protocol. And that's not a medicine I want to practice and that's not a system I
0: want to be in. I will never go back. I will never yeah. go back. Is it is it true that the hospitals have been incentivized financially? Uh, if they have a COVID-positive patient, that's more money. If they intubate, that's more money. If the patient dies, that's more money.
1: There are financial incentives screaming from so much. If you want to look at how the system behaves, you just have to look at it as the system is designed, and I mean, right? I can't remember what that adage is, right? Like the system will get the results for which it's designed for. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, me. yeah. And and they will bake legislation in. So yeah, if there's an incentive to code people as COVID deaths, more money. Um, you give them remdesivir, you get a twenty cent twenty percent bonus on mm-hmm. the uh, on the entire hospital bill, right? For using EY approved medicines. Um, you know, the ventilator part that's always been there. Like um, hospitals have always gotten more money for who lands on event, the but there's reasons for that because the, the costs of caring for a ventilated patient are just so large. But right. I think there's an even. Even more added on bonus if you care for a ventilated patient with COVID.
0: You know, so there, there are tons of incentives and they don't lead to good medicine. No. So would you agree the goal for a loved one is do whatever you possibly can to stay out of the hospital?
1: 100%. I mean, my dream since, and, and you know, let me go back to like, you know, when COVID started and around the time that I resigned my first position, uh, we had started to form the FLCCC. You know, uh, a couple of people... Common doctors reached out to Paul Merrick, you know, the co- my co-founder, and you know, he and I lead the organization. And he's a famous guy. I mean, he's literally the most published intensivist in the history of our field, um, who's practicing. The guy who has more papers than him. Actually, doesn't see patients. Um, so I consider him the most published practicing intensivist in in, in our history. And he's very well known for his protocols for sepsis and whatnot. So people reached out to him early on and said, you know, you, you got to do something. here. You know, there's no treatment protocols. There's nothing. And so we got together, reading everything, talking to doctors everywhere, you know, uh, from China to Italy, um, you know, to different. You know, I have all, all of my old colleagues and friends were running ICUs in New York City. And we put together an early protocol. Pro- that was a hospital protocol. And we got some prominence from that. We didn't have an early treatment protocol until the fall when we discovered the efficacy of ivermectin. And, um, you know, my dream since that time is that every family, every cupboard in America has an early treatment kit in there. Um, and with a combination of medicines, you treat it early upon first symptoms, like you're supposed to do with any viral syndrome. And we would avoid hospitalizations in almost all. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't. We wouldn't have this fear. We wouldn't have this emergency. I mean, that's that's been my dream: is that early treatment is recognized with effective, safe drug. I'm not talking about Paxlovid; that's another corruption, and Molnupiravir is even worse corruption.
0: So the early treatments that the FLCCC came up with, I remember Math Plus was the first thing I became yeah. aware of, uh, and of course that you continue to evolve what you're offering. Um, how can people, so you're like one of the world leaders on ivermectin, maybe you can speak briefly about that, but then how can people get access to ivermectin for one, which is very difficult in some states, but then also to this kit that you feel like we all should have, because I, I agree with you. Uh, if, if you are prepared, there may be another pandemic that comes our way and uh, maybe you can speak to that as well.
1: Yeah. So in terms of so we have our protocol. And I want to be clear, like, I don't think that's the only protocol that works. I've seen lots of different protocols. They all work. I mean, if you go to this website called c19early.com, C19early, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's this yeah. phenomenal resource of real-time, ongoing, comprehensive meta-analyses on all sorts of therapeutics for COVID. I think there were, we're up to 43 compounds of therapeutics that are effective in different phases of COVID. So you have this whole host of things that work as antivirals and anti-inflammatories, right? And whatever combination you choose, you can come up with different protocols. So my answer to your question, so if you go to um, – so. Let me be clear. I have a nonprofit, which is the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. I also have a private practice because I left the system and I actually went into private practice because I wanted to become expert in the treatment of long haul COVID and vaccine injury. Um, and we also do treatment kit planning um, as well as treatment of acute COVID. So it's a very COVID specialty practice. So that's drp or um, And so that's one resource. But if you go to the nonprofit, we have a list of practitioners, generally met, uh, telehealth, who do early treatment. And we don't vet them or anything. I think a lot of them kind of follow the FLCCC protocol, but the, with little changes, you know, they might do one thing. They might put in an antibiotic like doxycycline and like, I'm fine with all of it. Um, but I would say that's a good resource to find um, practitioners who will um, prescribe an early treatment kit and then how to get ivermectin, you know, that war on ivermectin. I mean, they, they, I wouldn't say they won it. I think they fought it to a stalemate. I, I, it's my belief that, People or practitioners who haven't used ivermectin yet won't start, um, but those of us who know that it works and have been using it the whole time in the pandemic, we're going to keep going. The only thing that keeps us going is compounding pharmacies, and I will tell you in general, that ecosystem of pharmacies has been very supportive because they've always been kind of, you know, a little bit outside the system, you know, supporting naturopaths and integrative and functional with kind of non-approved you know, uh, approved therapies that are very effective, and so I think they've always had like that kind of um, – almost like underdog or like, uh, you know, different perspective. I don't use retail pharmacies anymore. I just use compounding. I've, I've been working with a couple that have just been so great. Um, so supportive. And so, um, you can get them from compounding pharmacies. I would say the majority will fill for COVID. Uh, retail is closed. I mean, the, the, the agency scared the hell out of all the pharmacists and all the doctors, all the health systems have scared the doctors, none of them can prescribe. And so, um, so that's one resource. And then not that I'm promoting this, but I mean, many people have been able to buy ivermectin from, for instance, India, right. They have a whole industry of, uh, they sell medicines and, um,
0: I think they've worked very well. So, I mean, there, there are a few resources and, um, yeah, we won't talk about animal formulations. <laughs> and, uh, those other resources, are those available in your book or on your website as far as the-,
1: That's the website? Yeah, no, the book doesn't deal with like those kind of specific, it's not about medical guidance. I'm really, the book is, um, it's not done yet, but, um, yeah, it really goes over the war on ivermectin. Um, um, and it's also really kind of like a personal and like FLCCC history. I'll give you a little, um, insight to like my substack is going to be a lot of my book, but it, the book's going to be still quite different, but, it's going to be a little bit less than the Substacks, but if you've been reading my Substack, you'll, you already know tons, <laughs> um, but some of the personal history of how we came to be and where we came from is going to be different. But, um, you know, the one thing I want to point out, um, cause I, I've said this before, cause it's really important, you know, after I testified on ivermectin in December of 2020, um, as you probably know, you know, I was pretty impassioned during that testimony and it went viral. Right. And, and, so it became this kind of really interesting thing, right? Suddenly, not, and this isn't about ego or fame, but it went viral and suddenly everybody was talking about ivermectin. Like there's this doctor here, he's saying that it works, he's got all these studies, there's nothing out of else. And so suddenly you saw this lot of attention on ivermectin. And, you know, then I uh, had my uh, comprehensive review paper, which just had overwhelming data showing how effective ivermectin is in COVID. And, and I thought like after that testimony went viral, our paper compiled all of the evidence to support it. I thought like it would be warmly received by society and like governments and people would like, widely recommend and deployed in prevention and treatment. And what happened next, I just couldn't figure out what was going on because like, I did an interview with the Associated Press within days of that testimony, and it was a hit job. Like, They literally, 20 minutes, I answered every question, provided them tons of data, and they don't even mention that. And they just say, ivermectin is not a miracle drug. And and they don't even really talk about it. All they say is that it's the latest hydroxychloroquine. So, So here I am like, wait a second. I just interviewed with the Associated Press, one of the oldest and most powerful news agencies in the world, and I'm looking at this article. What is going on? I'm like, how could they write this? We actually filed an ethics complaint against the social. This is how naive we were at the time. (laughs) But my point is this, is that that kept happening. You know, then my paper passes peer review at a prominent journal, three rounds of peer review, four different sciences, three of them senior scientists in the FDA and the NIH. And the journal won't publish it. Yep. And then they they sat on our paper for so long. I wrote an email one day. I said, I suspect scientific misconduct. There's no credible reason why you're not publishing this paper that's been peer reviewed. And then the chief editor basically has a meeting with my editor and says, we're retracting the paper because we found an anonymous third party reviewer who feels your conclusions don't match your results. So now, like, now I'm starting to understand that we're up against something big and not very friendly. But what changed my life was um, in early March of 2021, so three months after that testimony, and the hit jobs and the censorship and all these attacks, uh, this researcher from Australia, his name is Professor William – have you heard me tell this story before? This guy, oh. Professor William B. Grant, who I think he's around 80, um, and he's a long time, like, world expert in uh, vitamin D and the uses of vitamin D you know, in, in prevention of disease, treatment of disease. And it was a two-line email, and all it said was, Dr. Corey, what they are doing to vitamin D – I mean to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And then he included a link to an article, which is called The Disinformation Playbook. And I'm like, what is this? And I click on the link and it's this not long article, very simple conceptual article written by um, the Union for Concerned Scientists. It's on their website. It's actually Googleable. Um, and I read it and it spells out these five tactics that industries use when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interests. And so, and, it, and it's called the disinformation playbook because each tactic is named after a football play. Like one is called the blitz where they harass researchers. Uh, one is called the fake, the screen. I can't remember the other two, but each play I'm reading. I'm like, wait, they're doing that. They're doing that. They're doing that. And like, it was like a click. Suddenly I got to tell you, suddenly the world made sense to me. Like I couldn't figure out who's doing what and why they were doing it. And suddenly everything that I've been living through for three months was explained in that little article. Every single crazy thing that I saw being done to ivermectin was right in that little article. And, and that's kind of like when not only did things start to make sense, but I understood I was in a war, meaning that there were people that wanted to destroy ivermectin. And as a physician, knowing that it's super safe, highly effective, people are dying from a disease around the world. Now I realize what—not my new job, but I was assigned the role—that I got to keep going here because, as a physician, Paul, what are you going to do there? Say, "Oh, this is too much," and I'm going to keep quiet now and let people die and not know that there's an effective medicine out there in no a way. And also, we had an organization that was devoted to it, so we, we knew we had a mission, and we're going to do ours, they're going to do theirs, and uh, see where we end up. I think we've saved a few people, and that's an understatement. When we, our protocols around the world—a lot of a good portion of the world knows ivermectin's effect. That there are many countries that use it,
0: uh, but not not in the United States of Pharma. Yep. So you've outlined pretty clearly what also became real evident to me. Our sick care system what we like to call healthcare, but it's really sick care um it's so broken because it's tied in with the journals that aren't publishing the real science nope. uh it's all a captured system i don't think it's fixable do you
1: no 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 i don't No, no 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 uh it's definitely not fixable. And, and i thought that for a while well if we just completely take down nih cdc and fda and restructure it uh no because that's still controlled by corporations like the government unfortunately i've learned is is literally controlled by corporations they have immense amount of power from legislators onward so I don't think you can build a system which is awash and so much money and think that a positive, you know, patient primary centered, you know, focus will come out of that system. You, you're going to see other influences and objectives. So yeah, I, I like that point. I don't think it's fiscal. The other, uh, the other notion that we see tossed around and we, I don't want to say we give lip service to, I just don't know what it's going to look like. We talk about parallel systems. Now, I think we already kind of have one, you know, like if you, you know, alternative practitioners used to be a four letter word for me, right? I was a good, well-trained system doctor, right? You know, when you hear about people using hyperbaric oxygen and all sorts of other things, like Oh, uh, that's all nonsense. Because if it, if it worked and it made sense, it would be in the journals, Paul. Maybe we'd be doing it. But it would be in the journals. And they don't teach us that. And we are the white coats. We're the smartest. We have the most research and most knowledge. If we're not using it, it must not work. What I found is now that I'm outside of the system and I have a private practice that is fee based, I'm learning so many different therapeutics and mechanisms that you've never heard about that are wildly effective. And so I'm using what would be termed alternative therapies. Now, they're not alternative, they're completely scientifically sound, therapeutically robust and potent, but you'd never be able to use it on the inside. And so, I do believe that, you know, um, the problem is that I'm fee-based, right? I I, don't, I can't take insurance, right? not doing what I do. Insurance is not going to pay for half the stuff. So the, the shame is, because I've always worked kind of in, on the inner city, is that I'm not seeing poor patients. We do see some pro bonos, but it's, unfortunately, it's not a system for all, but at least it's the beginnings of one. And I don't, I don't know how to build that out for
0: everybody. Yeah, but. that is the biggest challenge because so many of us who have a conscience, uh, who won't turn a blind eye when we know, we know what's really going on, we want to help everyone. I mean that's that's at our core. Yeah, and, and yet um, people are stuck in the insurance model. And you can't use insurance for alternative things.
1: No, and then insurance controls what you can and can't use, and and even the stuff that you can use, they're pretty stingy about that. Right. I mean, right. Even like an approved evidence based uh, medicine, they make you go, go through all these administrative bureaucratic hoops to try to get it for your patients. Right. And so as if doctors have all the time in the world to like, argue with insurance companies, they make us do that. So. So anyway, I do think, you know, this discussion of like a parallel system. And that's why I, I got to say we are in a good place compared to other countries is that, like, we do have a system of compounding pharmacies for now. You know, we do have the ability to see patients privately in some countries you can't. Um, and so at least we have some freedoms left in medicine. Um, but, you know, learning some about the history of some of these doctors, like those who know the chronic Lyme is a thing and treat chronic Lyme, they've had a rough time of it. I mean, they've got, you know, some have lost their license. I mean, the system will not let us in peace out here. Here's yeah. what I'm really worried about, as as we get more success and or maybe more popular, because well, I'm sure you hear this say you came to our conference, how many people, the lay people there? The, the, the first thing they come to me when they talk to Dr. Corey, where can I go for care? I'm terrified of the hospital. I don't want to go back to my doctor. My PCP is pushing this vaccine. I mean, they know how toxic those vaccines are. So, so would you go to someone who's literally pushing a toxic intervention on you, but now you're going to trust them for their other guidance, the people are terrified. Yep. But if you get more popular and they moves
0: more into that space, they're not going to leave us in peace, right, Paul? Well, they're going to start coming after us. Therein lies the problem. How about, uh, as we get close to winding down, um, public health, that term used to mean for me, oh, these are the best people who want the best health for our entire population. And watching them not just mismanage, but absolutely, it appears to the fact that they're all just spreading misinformation and disinformation, lying to the public and harming are the you? public. They're lying and harming us, and, and yet we've given them so much power that actually, you know, the head of public health in a given state probably has more power, it seems like, than the president of the United States. Sure. Um, what do we do with that?
1: Here's, so the private knowledge is those of us now understand and can see the system for what it is, which is the way we look at public health, yeah, there's no more halo or hagiography hey, like over last century where you saw really literally public health campaigns that really had the intent of trying to eradicate, control disease, promote the health of the population. Now, especially in covid that they're not interested in public health. It's literally they're using those public agencies as levers to promote a market for their wares. And 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 it, and those agencies are now working for an industry that is a documented criminal industry, right? I mean, well-documented criminal industry. I mean, the, the criminal fines and civil fines that they paid for doing things, for suppressing adverse event data, the deaths they've caused. I mean, so now you have a criminal industry that's running public health. So how do you solve that? I think you have to start with what I talked about before is where I started. I had an implicit faith and trust into the institutions of medicine um, in the beginning. And now I don't, I can see them for what they are. I know they're not scientific and I know they're captured. So the best thing for my health, Paul, is to not listen to them. Be very skeptical of everything they're doing. Um, assume that whatever policy emits from there, it's not about your health. It's about something else. And so if we can get that to be a common knowledge, I think that removes the power. I think that removes the power and it doesn't make us complicit in our own demise. So for instance, that campaign, That they whipped up in society to globally vaccinate the world with, I'm sorry, but it's the most toxic and lethal medical intervention known to man. The data to support that is overwhelming. It's causing excess mortality throughout the world amongst young people who are working. If you don't know that they're doing that, if you trust them, you're putting yourself in danger by listening to them. And so I hate having to talk such dark concepts, which is literally trying to tell people you need to temper your faith that these institutions are working for you. Because if you do that, you're going to be led far astray. You're going to be led to five toxic boosters and a horrific either death and or disability. Um, which is all that I see. So, and, But but then what happens? I don't know what the second step is, but the first is I want people to know that this is an information war and they need to know where their sources of good information are. And, and here here's my here's my criteria for a good source of information. You want to listen to someone who, first and foremost, the most overwhelming quality they must have in order to, for you to even have any semblance of faith. They have to be free of conf- conflicts of interest, um, which is almost impossible from the system because if you're a professor at an academic medical center, you have a conflict of interest. There are things you can't say or do. Career is over you can't work for a pharmaceutical company to be a CEO of one, which I think is one of the most absurd things that happened in the past. Suddenly, we have our major newspapers, like Borla opens his mouth and it's a headline. Borla thinks this, we should get a booster for the fall. And I'm like, since when do we listen to Big Pharma? So you you want someone who's conflict of interest free, which is very hard to do. You want them to be expert in their field. You want them to be fully transparent with their data and be willing to debate it and to use a variety of sources of data. And I will say that I, the fifth one is not necessary, but they have to be willing to sacrifice their position to, it's unfortunate that you have to do that, but um I don't think you have to be willing. Because by definition, if you meet those first four, <laughs> <you're That's> not... <laughs> <sacrificing>. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that's an added bonus. But you know, the conflicts of interest with everybody. Uh, you know, there's a lot of self-censoring. You know, Paul, you know what scares me is that that you know cohort I talk about that private knowledge, my network. I think inside the system, there's a not insignificant but growing number of doctors who know that they're not, they're working in a very fraudulent, corrupt system. Mm-hmm. But they, they don't know, know how to get out. They, but they also don't know how to get out. And they don't they've seen what happens to people who try to call that out i mean your career is done you're you're done and so ah.
0: (laughs) pierre i would add to to your list even though it's not a critical requirement but humility you you bring such a wonderful combination of courage knowledge humility and um, expertise that that without all of those things you're absolutely right it's it's hard to even make a dent um i know you're coming up on your deadline and we need to wrap it up maybe just i'll give you the final word what would be your closing message to the world
1: you know, um, I mean, I would, I would say COVID-specific message, this is a treatable disease, period. Um, highly treatable, many effective therapies. Uh, that would be one. I like, I'll like. go back to that central point. Get a treatment kit ready for you, your family. We need to have agency in our lives. I want people to realize that you can't rely on the agencies. You need to gain agency over your own health and life. And then going forward, we need to uh, develop trusted sources from a parallel system without conflicts of interest that can give us good guidance on how to keep ourselves healthy and thriving. And um, we haven't been healthy. We haven't thrived in three years, either uh, physically, medically, socially, politically. I mean, it's, it's been a really very dark uh, few years. But my hopes are that we've been through a lot of suffering. Hopefully a lot of us have undergone growth, intellectual, spiritual. right? And I think, you know, I do think things happen in cycles and things get better. And I, and I am I am hopeful that uh, the amount of people who can learn the lessons I learned through my three years experience here uh, will grow. And I think that'll make us healthier we need to have a diet of good information that's sound um and, and that's well-intentioned i mean the propaganda and censorship has you know i don't want to end on a negative thing but the way in which i viewed the last three years is that the world has gone mad not their fault it's through this unrelenting propaganda and censorship and i think if we can view that i think we can neuter it and, and, and we can you know take away the power of, of all the destruction that the propaganda and censorship is having and then we can have real open discussions we can learn from each other we can debate things we can talk about uh you know vitamin d different you know elderberry it's use in rsv or flu like we can have like good conversations about real topics that mean something to us that that, that, you know have an impact on our health and i I hope those conversations are going to happen i hope society wakes up i hope the private knowledge that i've gained very uncomfortably gained um becomes common knowledge i think it's healthy so pierre thank Um, you so much
0: yeah i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let you go you are a blessing to the world i appreciate Ah, you so much great to talk to you take care i look forward to running together with the wind at our backs revealing the science that gives clarity in our world that's full of propaganda and misinformation visit our website, doctorsandscience.com. Sign up. Donate if you can. Your support makes a difference. And let's make this the weekly show the world has been waiting for. Thanks for watching. I'm Dr. Paul.